All right, well, we'll get started. I know Tuesday we talked about Trump, but it comes up again. So Trump has the Trump Foundation, which is similar to what you're describing. His private business was fined or sued by the Florida government, and his lawyers arranged this plea bargain that he would donate $100,000 to the city instead of face civil litigation. And so the arrangement that the lawyers' agreement that they made was that he would donate $100,000 to the city. And so the way that he addressed that was then Trump Foundation, which is a charitable nonprofit, made a $100,000 donation to the city. And what's interesting is technically that's legal. And technically the judge who okayed that agreement made it legal or whatever. Like that's the agreement that they made. But there's a lot of public scrutiny of like he's basically paying off his debt through the foundation. But technically, it's legal. It's not ethical. It's not moral. But in a sense, it was okayed by the judge. And so here's the foundation made a $100,000 contribution, which was really to cover the basis of his lawsuit that he was more or less losing. So you can see it being unethical, but it's also technically legal. So it's the gray areas of the nonprofits. Now we'll go with Philippe. So the nonprofit in the news article that I've chosen is titled College Group Sues U.S. Saying It's Target of Political Agenda. A charity called the Center for Excellence Education bought several for-profit colleges, and nearly all the money came from donation from the founder of the colleges, Carl Byrne. The total amount paid was $636 million. The Center for Excellence then restructured itself as a tax-exempt nonprofit educational corporation with Mr. Barney as chairman. The problem with this merger is that the education department is saying that since Mr. Barney retained control of colleges, he was still benefiting from the revenue generated from the 9,500 students still enrolled. This would make the colleges revert back to a for-profit status the allegations are to be true. I found this article interesting because it's not a clear situation. Mr. Barnett sells his colleges to a charity, but ends up giving most of the money for the sale, and he's still a part of the college that he started. It almost seems like the sale was to himself. So it's a private for-profit college that he converted into a nonprofit to qualify for government funding and all these other things. The legal side is saying that, well, you're not following the rules of a nonprofit because you're personally benefiting from it. Yeah, the education department is saying that since they receive federal aid, uh-huh. then they also, that was one of the stipulations that they couldn't keep on saying that they're a nonprofit. A yeah. I mean, another example where if you think of Indiana University as a nonprofit, and President McRobbie, he doesn't own IU. And if IU increases its enrollment, he doesn't get more money. And there isn't shareholders, IU shareholders, like stockholders who have an investment in IU being successful. So a nonprofit, in a sense, the profits go back into the university. It doesn't go to the owner of IU or into the shareholders of IU. Whereas a, a private university, I think it's is it ITT, which is in Indiana, was a, a private for-profit university. It's owned by somebody, you know, or like University of Phoenix, I think, is another for-profit university where there's an owner, it's a business, and it's clear that any tuition dollars that they get coming in goes to the owner or investors in that university. So again, if it's helpful to think through how do nonprofits differ from for-profit companies, and these examples you guys are giving are good examples of the differences, the nuanced differences. What we ended with on Tuesday was Sarbanes-Oxley, and so it's this big, huge overhaul of the financial system regulations. But the interesting thing is, is that if you're running a nonprofit, you're not beholden to most of the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations. The only two that 
nonprofits have to do is it prohibits the destruction of documents for seven years. So financial records, financial accounting, you have to keep the records for seven years. And also it protects whistleblowers. So people who see unscrupulous activity and they want to blow the whistle. So it's similar to the San Francisco uh, Arts Museum, where the CFO blew the whistle on the president of the San Francisco Arts Museum saying she just gave a $400,000 bonus to this person who left and, and it wasn't approved by the board. And so she got fired. But because of Sarbanes-Oxley, she had a lot more leverage to say, hey, listen, it was illegal for me to get fired for blowing the whistle on unethical activities. And so that's what Sarbanes-Oxley Act does. Now, what's interesting, the second mechanism of accountability is self-regulation. And that's sort of like what we talked about on Tuesday. That's the design of the nonprofit sector, that it'd be independent, an independent sector. And it would rely on self-regulation because, in a sense, the government has to have a hands-off posture. And so what most of them do, they voluntarily <laughs> adopt all of the specifications of Sarbanes-Oxley. Or in a sense, a lot of their donors are, are familiar with Sarbanes-Oxley. And so then they expect the nonprofits to adhere to the new regulations of Sarbanes-Oxley. And basically what Sarbanes-Oxley is saying is you need to be clear on your finances. Like you can't sort of shuffle money around or shuffle your books around such that it hides major losses or it hides major profits. Uh, so it's basically saying you need to be clear and transparent with your finances. And so the expectation, even though it's voluntary, is to follow these financial regulations. And then, I don't know if you remember from the chapter, the independent sector had come up with these principles for good governance and ethical conduct. There was that pop-out that had, I think, 33 different principles. And they weren't just like one-line principles. They were like these long sentences. I don't know if you guys read all 33 of them, but what's interesting is all of them are just simply best practices, recommendations, sort of, here's how you run a nonprofit. None of them are binding. None of them are enforceable. So you're not bound to them, but again, they're recommendations. If you want to be an upstanding nonprofit, here's some good practices or principles to follow. Another part of self-regulation is these third-party accreditation groups or certification. So the best example I have is when you go to the grocery store, and you buy organic food, that's a third-party accreditation organization that sort of accredited or certifies that that banana that you're buying is organic. And there isn't any sort of federal law that says this is organic and this isn't organic. It's this third-party organization that goes around the farms and basically says, if you want to be a certified organic farm, you need to meet these criteria. And we're going to come and check you once a year and make sure you're not using certain types of fertilizer and not using using pesticides. And if you're abiding by all these rules, then we'll add you to our list of certified organic farmers. And so in the same way, nonprofits have certifications and accreditations that they can achieve. So the Better Business Bureau National Charity Seal. So if you get the Better Business Bureau Charity Seal, then that sort of is a stamp of approval that the Better Business Bureau has certified you to be a good charity. And then if you get a low score from the Better Business Bureau, then that doesn't look good for you. But it's nothing official. It's just recognition. So it isn't like the federal government says it. It's just if you think the Better Business Bureau is a good organization, then if you get that seal, then you're seen as a good nonprofit. So another example would be universities.
university, if you're thinking about getting a master's in nonprofit management, let's say. So USC, University of Southern California, just came up with this master's program in nonprofit management. It's one of the, the first ones at a major university. So you can get a, a master's degree in public administration, but if you want to get one strictly in nonprofit management, you can go to USC and it's a one-year master's degree. And so I was talking with the dean of that program and I was like, how can it be a one-year program, a one-year master's? That's like a sweet deal. You know, I'd much rather do one year and get a master's than a two-year program and get this, in a sense, at the end of the day, the same paper. I go, how did you meet the accreditation to do a one-year program? And he just turned to me pretty frankly and said, well, it's not accredited, but it doesn't need to be. So if you think about it, that the accreditation, like that universities have or universities get, it's important, but it's not critical. And he basically said the brand or the name of USC is our accreditation. And the same thing was at Berkeley in California. They had an architecture school. But it was widely known that it was not accredited because they did follow the School of Architecture accrediting body that sort of gave the stamp of approval for this is a good program, this is not a good program. And Berkeley didn't want to abide by their rules and basically said we don't care about your accreditation. And, and I sat there and I was like, well, why would you go four years and get an architecture degree with a program that is not accredited. Like, that just seems like a, a huge waste of money. But then I talk to the students who are architects, and I look and see none of them have a problem getting a job. Because if you have an architecture degree at Berkeley, you're going to get hired. And so the accreditation is it's not necessary, and it's not binding. It doesn't mean that these people can't be architects. It doesn't mean that, oh my goodness, the buildings that they build are going to fall down. It's just more a third party giving a stamp of approval saying, we've looked at your program and it meets these criteria, and so you're going to get accreditation. But accreditation isn't in and of itself anything binding or enforceable or sort of this official thing that says this works and this doesn't work. It's just it's sort of a sign of approval by these people, by these criteria. So, again, all of this is to say that these aren't official laws. These aren't sort of, if you're not in the club, then you can't function. It's really for organizations that are new or emerging. So if you're a new nonprofit, and I think I got an email from someone that's starting out this nonprofit, and I went to their website, and they didn't have any information on who they were or what their financial records are or what their history is. And I go, what's your accreditation? Who's sort of looked at your books and looked at your organization to give you a stamp of approval? And they said, well, nobody. And I said, well, if you really want people to start giving, you need to have some sort of accreditation because otherwise you're just an unknown entity. You're a new person emerging into the field and if you don't have any type of accreditation, people are going to be suspicious of you. Whereas USC has been around for over 100 years and people know, okay, it's a legitimate thing. So really this accreditation stuff helps newcomers and sometimes for like government funding you need to have certain accreditation in order to qualify for a government grant or government funding. But again and all this, what I want to emphasize is that it's all voluntary. You don't have to do it. It might help you, but if, if it's too cumbersome to get a certain accreditation, you can just sort of say, we're not interested. So USC and Berkeley, in those examples, said, we're going to pass. We're okay with the fact that the accrediting body is not going to give us certification. And so then the question would be, how much attention do you pay to accreditations and certifications? So if you think your own personal life, whether it be from or 
organic foods to institutions of higher education, how much attention do you pay to these accreditations or certifications? Can you think of examples where you're like even familiar with certain accreditations or certifications that you see just in your normal everyday life? Yeah. Well, I know you like, just briefly mentioned IT Tech earlier, uh-huh. and there's like an IT Tech campus <coughs> near my hometown, and they so like they're closing all the campuses, mm-hmm. and they were not accredited. There's an IU campus also in Fort Wayne, and they like weren't accepting their credits, and so all these students were like so close to graduating, and then couldn't transfer their credits anywhere. So there have been like, local, um, smaller like Christian universities or whatever that have like accepted and like, allowed them and to so transfer they their would, credits. They would, yeah. So I mean that's that's a great example where you know it's this marginal fringe organization like ITT, which you know it's been around, but it's not like IU, <laughs> where you know if you get credits from IU, you know that you can transfer <coughs> wherever you want. But here's these people who paid thousands of dollars and taking courses, but because it wasn't from a, an accredited institution, they, they don't count for anything. Unless you have an ITT alum who's like, oh, I love ITT grads because they're the best. But, okay, yeah, over here. That's what you're saying because my high school back at home, like, you were, like, really high performing, but the school was in such bad shape that they were saying that we're almost going to lose our accreditation mm-hmm. as a high school. Mm-hmm. So I thought that meant like we won't get to months or something uh-huh. but but there was weird I was like I know there's schools like in worse shape than this this can be the, so like, that didn't like mean that it just kind of said well, so in the in the case of USC, the fact that they're not that that program is not accredited, so USC is accredited, but certain not all of their programs are. It's like Berkeley as an institution accredited, but certain programs don't meet the criteria. And in those cases, it doesn't matter. But in the case of IT Tech, the fact that it's not accredited and that the value of those credits are low, then it does affect. Whereas if your if your high school is just known as producing some high quality students. Then they go to apply for universities. So look at the high school and say, oh, that's a good high school. We've had you know generations of students coming from your high school. And so you're not necessarily looking at whether or not accredited. Whereas if I get an applicant from a high school, a private high school that I've never heard of before, never had an applicant for, and I go on and I look, like, what is this high school? And I dig a little deeper and I say, it's not accredited, it doesn't have any, you know, their placement record is very poor. And so then I'd be like less likely to admit that student. The accreditation is just sort of a stamp of approval. It's like a, a formal endorsement. There's some third party that has some level of respect that basically says, you meet these standards. And then, but again, if, if a private high school loses its accreditation, it's not necessarily the end of the world for them. If they have a long-standing record of credibility and sort of producing high-quality students, you know, that's why USC, when they developed this program, they said, we don't need to play by that rule. So again, it's, it's sort of helping you to think through if the nonprofits exist in their own little separate world, they're not bound by certain laws that the private sector is. But also, like if you're a new organization, you want to sort of have credibility, that's where the certifications help. And then the third mechanism of accountability is transparency or public scrutiny. So you have these accrediting bodies, and then you just sort of have the public perception of these organizations. And so transparency, one would be making organizational information publicly available. So a great example of this would be SPIA. So SPIA does a lot of research that's funded by the government and other private foundations. 
And about a year ago, six months ago, there was this funder. The Koch brothers had funded research from the school for faculty in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And the Koch brothers are sort of more infamously known as being climate change deniers. And so here, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs was receiving money to do research from people who are more or less known as being climate change deniers. And a lot of the alumni were saying, you know, hey, how much money is the Koch brothers giving to USPIA? Because that bothers me. That affects sort of our credibility as being a school of environmental affairs. And it sort of goes against what the principles or ideals of our school. And so then the question was, we want greater transparency. We want to know where the money's coming from and how much. And SPIA had to decide, are we going to be transparent and you know publicly reveal all the donations that are made? And one of SPIA's reactions was, well, some people made donations anonymously. They didn't want people to know that they had made that contribution. And so a lot of organizations will face this of, you know, how transparent should they be? And in general, the greater level of transparency, the greater level of trust that people have. And again, if you're hiding things, it just raises more questions and unnecessary concerns, unless you're hiding something that, you know, why would you be hiding it or not disclosing it? And so again, SPIA is one example of this, but other organizations regularly face this. So, you know, we want to know what the salary is of your staff and of the CEO. We want to know how much of your money is being spent towards these things versus these things. So universities, especially public universities, I mean, any, you could actually look up the salary of any public employee. Those records have to be disclosed. So the salaries that what you're describing is mainly if you're an employee of the state, any employee of the state, you can look up their, their salary. Any state university functions as a nonprofit, but it gets bulk of its funding from the state. So it's it's one of those strange middle grounds of it's a nonprofit, it runs as a nonprofit, but it gets most of its funding from the, the state. So nonprofits often get funding from the government. It's just universities are set up in such a way that they get a lot from state and federal entities. So, but a regular nonprofit, the amount that it has to disclose is very limited. Uh, but they choose to disclose a lot more in order to bolster the trust and believability of the organization. Uh, and then there's these third-party groups like Charity Navigator, where basically they go in and do investigative reporting on certain organizations to see to say, is this organization doing what they're saying they're doing? And if they're not, we're going to expose them. Or there's other types of watchdog groups that they'll just sort of scour the nonprofit field and if they see a nonprofit that seems suspicious, Wounded Warriors Project, like that was exposed through one of these watchdog groups going in and looking at their activity and looking at their, their financial records and digging in deeper and saying, hey, listen, what they're doing, you know, the public should be aware of this because they wouldn't be happy or satisfied. So you can voluntarily self-disclose. The government's not going to require you to, but then there might be a third-party watchdog group that gets in and sort of digs up information and, and gets information to reveal unethical stuff. So again, Wounded Warriors Project didn't have to shut down. They just lost a lot of credibility. So again, all these things are not like if you lose accreditation, you don't stop functioning as an organization. It just hurts 
your reputation and your credibility. So again, all of these things are more best practices. If you want to run a good organization that gets funding, here's things to do. But if you don't do them, there's very little recourse unless you blatantly break the law. But what Wounded Warriors did, they didn't break the law. They just did stuff that most of their donors wouldn't be happy about. Um, so we're going to transition to talking about measuring performance. A lot of it will relate to the program part of your nonprofit organization. And so we'll talk about where that fits in. But if you think of nonprofit organizations, like what are some of the most successful nonprofit organizations that you know of that, you're, that they come to mind? You think of, oh, that's a really successful nonprofit, whether it's a local one or national. So self-help, Habitat for Humanity, and Heritage. So there's a lot of different criteria that you can use to measure the performance of an organization. And then the question is on what criteria? Like Carly said, well, look at the, the return on investment in the sense of when you give $100, look at the proportion that goes directly to the programs. Brandon's talking about innovation, and then we hear about how they interact with their clients and with their constituents. So there's a bunch of different criteria. The distinction that I would make and that I think is important when we think about major performance, there's a tendency to rely on anecdotal evidence, like the story or the narrative. And even that's what the nonprofit will pitch, is they'll, they'll tell a story about one person who is a beneficiary of the organization. And that even might be a very compelling story, but it's not comprehensive and it's not a strong uh, evidence of success. It's one indicator, it's one example. And so the other way of measuring performance would be a data intensive, or you hear of like evidence-based decision-making or data-driven decision-making. And what that is, is a much more empirical, quantitative, rigorous analysis of the organization. You look at, you know, all of the constituents or all the people involved. And so if you think of like Habitat for Humanity, what are the sweat equity hours that they have to invest and what percentage of the recipients actually do it and, and how, what percentage of them actually go on to helping build other homes. Look at, in aggregate, all of the people receive recipients. Because you could take one example of a person who, you know, was a recipient of a Habitat home and they do this long like, video series of this person and show them and say, isn't this great? Like, they're putting in sweat equity and putting in extra hours and they went on to be a full-time volunteer with Habitat. And that might be a great story, but it's anecdotal in the sense that it's one person. And another way of looking at it would be just look at the hard numbers of, you know, all the recipients of homes. And it might tell a different story or a less sensationalized story. And so as we think about measuring performance and even when I'll ask you to measure the performance of your organization and your programs, it needs to be more data intensive versus just anecdotal. So anecdotal is good for marketing and promotions, but if you have someone who's more critical and is going to look at, they're going to ask the more critical questions of like, what is all this in aggregate? I want a more data-driven, data-intensive uh, analysis of your performance. And so then with that, when we talk about measuring performance, there's two categories that you need to keep in mind. The first one is organizational performance. So organizational performance is how well is this organization run? Sort of holistically, as an organization, is it run well? And the second part is program effectiveness. 
So that's not with the whole organization. It's just which marquee program that you're doing and how effective is that program? So, you know, you could be an organization that's designed very well and good sort of structure, organizational structure, but then your actual programs that you do aren't very effective. They aren't really accomplishing it. And so there's two levels of which we, we measure performance. One is at the organizational level, like how are you doing in sort of hiring and recruiting people and sort of being financially sound and having a, a smooth running organization. And the other is the actual programs that you provide, are they effective? And what you know what they're doing. So there's there's two levels of it, of analysis, and we'll look at both of them. So it's is the organization run well, and is the program effective? So there's two streams of measuring performance. So the first is measuring organizational performance. So one of the key ways to to measure the performance of an organization is with its finances. When you think about an organization's finances, what aspects of the finances could you measure? When you think about the finances of a nonprofit, what are the different things that you could possibly measure if you're looking at the financial performance of the organization? Carly, yeah. Okay, so just the sheer number of the amount of money coming in revenue. So not just donations, but then also like if they have a for-profit side, like if they have earned income side. So money coming in, what other aspects of the finances? Expenses. Expenses, okay. So what are they spending money on? Any other things that you can think of with the finances. What about the expenses? Like, I was thinking like money that they spend on like different fundraisers. Okay. So the money that they have to spend to get money. Right. Back there. Like if they like set out a budget, if they like found a budget meeting that budget. Okay. Yeah. So what is what is their budget and what is their actual expenses? Uh, what is their budget for how much you come in and how much actually came in? So yeah, just looking at having a budget and how deep it is and then how well did they did they meet that budget and, and even looking back year after year do they consistently over budget or under budget so yeah another one would be just the, the, the number of donors that they have what you mentioned Bryce and how much they're spending on fundraising so you could have a ton of money coming in but then if you look like yeah but they're spending a ton on fundraising and so for every dollar that comes in they're spending like 50 cents to get that dollar so you have to look at the comparison so there's i guess many dimensions of finances because you could also look at the salaries if there's bonuses that are offered so all the aspects of the the financial side of an organization is an indicator of its performance or how well the organization is run another one would be efficiency versus effectiveness and so you know what, what carly mentioned was an example of efficiency that you know, for every $100 that comes in, $80 goes directly to programming. So then the question is, and this is a big question within the nonprofit sector, is what do you value more that the nonprofit is efficient in that they minimize costs? Sort of like what Carly was alluding to, like, this is really impressive. Like, so much, uh, such a high proportion of the money is going towards the programs that that's an indicator of a high-performing organization. Or is it more important that the organization be effective, that they maximize the results 
like that they're actually accomplishing stuff that's meaningful and significant. And so if you think about it, it, it just from your own perspective, we're going to do a Socrative to get a sense of this. But basically, so is it more important for a nonprofit to be efficient or effective? Just in your own perspective, which would you, which do you value more or do you think would be more important as a criteria for a success of an organization? You have to pick one over the other. Okay, so the people who would, who would advocate for efficient, um, what would be some of your reasons for like, it's, it's really important that they be efficient, 25% quarter of the class. What are some reasons why efficiency, why you would say efficiency needs to be a high criteria? It's not to say that you don't want to be ineffective, you know, you don't want them to be ineffective, but at the end of the day, you want your money to be well spent. What would be some of your reasons for supporting efficiency? Who supported it? It isn't a right or wrong thing. I mean, actually, most of the nonprofit sector, most people who give to nonprofits, they want to know how efficient is your organization, like how much of my, of my dollar is actually going to go to providing services. So it's, it's actually the majority of the field would value efficiency over effectiveness. I vote for it. Yeah. Um, I think that like, it lays the framework for the organization because your organizations give a lot of money and only a tiny percentage of that is going to the actual programs. It can still be effective. Well, and so the, the reason why efficiency sort of becomes the, the main focus is because it's much more easy to quantify. Like you can just look directly at what percentage of the dollar is going towards the programs and what percent is going towards fundraising or, or other aspects. And it's it's something that you can boast about. If you can push down costs a bunch and sort of do bare bones, then it'll look impressive. Like, hey, look at it. You know, 88% of every dollar that comes in goes directly by the service price. Are we talking about the patients within their, their finances or the entire organization? Well, so what other aspects of efficiency? Finance them being efficient and... I mean, like, provide customer service or, I mean, just stand on top of, like, social media. Okay. There's so many different aspects of the organization. Well, and so a big thing that organizations look at, at the end of the day, it comes down to finances. Now, some of those things that you're talking about is money that would go towards program providing services. And so when they talk about efficiency of an organization, it's basically, at the end of the day, they want to know what percentage of your dollar of your donation is going towards the program programs, the recipients of your programs, like the direct services versus the things like fundraising uh, to, um, you know, overhead costs that you might have. So a lot of organizations, so their office space, they have these bare-bone offices where the rent is really low and they have weak internet and, you know, they just sort of, their infrastructure is very uh, mediocre and, and it's because they're trying to keep all of their overhead costs really low so that a high percentage of their donations can go towards providing services and so then even salary is kept low such that what it does is it sort of undermines the effectiveness of the organization because they're trying to do everything bare bones versus running like a full-fledged organization having some of the, the amenities that you need to run a high-performing organization. So there's a challenge, you know, and even Charity Navigator looks at, you know, they, they rate you based on what percentage of your dollars are going towards overhead and what percentage is going towards the programs and services. So the people who would say, well, 
you know, at the end of the day, I just want to know that the organization is effective. Right. And what would be, why, why is effectiveness more important? Uh, well, you know, I was thinking of the overall organization. Yeah. I just kind of put myself in the customer's shoes, uh, which I, I am a customer for any organization. I would prefer quality over quantity. When I first thought about the question, I was thinking of if I were to go to an organization and I wanted, you know, customer service in general, I would want to be more effective and uh-huh. to be efficient only because if efficiency sometimes uh, brings low quality to um, uh, to the customer service that they give to you. So if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I like think that effective is a mission. Um, and I guess like an example would be like a food pantry. Maybe like their mission is to like provide meals to like like decrease poverty or, or some or like maybe it's a shelter or something. Yeah. If you're efficient, like maybe you give a lot of people your services, but if you're effective, maybe not as many people are getting your services, but you're reducing poverty. Sure. Yeah, the, the long term benefit. Yeah, it's more like you're you're doing your goal rather than just serving more people. Yeah. And so it'd be better to efficient and effective, like do both at once. But well and so is there, there's a trade off and that's why, you know, this is one level this isn't a fair question if you need to be bold. But at the end of the day, you need to decide what are we going to value more, the effectiveness or the efficiency. And the industry or the field sort of values efficiency. So like when Bryson talks about customers, you have two customers in a sense. You have two stakeholders. You have your recipients, but you also have your donors. And the recipients might care about effectiveness. The donor might care more about efficiency. And so you you, you have two customers. Frank? Uh, to add on to what they were saying, too, is, you know, it's not propositions or mission is. Uh-huh. The idea is that giving back in some way or another, creating a service, and you have to be the most effective can to do that. And throughout time, as you get, you find out the tools that work best within your organization, you can innovate, and that becomes more efficient. Uh-huh. Through there, because you become better and better at these different uh, different tools that you use, so that you can be more effective there, and then the efficiency comes as you get more and more of a buy-in to what that mission is, that causes, that believe that it's important to drive forward and create success. Yeah. So if if you think about, you know, the the comparison is with the private sector, and if a private sector for-profit organization is not efficient, they go bankrupt and they go out of business. Like, if they end up spending more than they're making, they go bankrupt. With the non-profit sector, it's a different dynamic. It's like, well, spend as little as you can so that you can continue to operate. But it really could be viewed as the same way as the for-profit sector, where if you're not bringing in enough money to run your program then you go bankrupt and so even with fundraising some organizations get criticized for spending a lot of money on marketing and branding and, and fundraising like they spend a lot of money getting the word out to give to our organization but at the end of the day it's effective because it brings in a lot of money whereas if they had no branding no marketing no fund development officer they would bring in far less money and so then to accomplish their mission they have a, a much smaller pool of money to work with and so sometimes an organization nonprofit gets criticized for putting so much emphasis on fundraising and they're not really doing their mission but they would argue back and say well no we're putting all this money into fundraising because we need the resources to accomplish our mission to be effective at what we're doing yeah we could have a bare bones budget and not have a fund development officer and not spend much on fundraising and whatever comes in comes in but then they work with a really 
really small pool of money and the effectiveness of the organization is undermined. There's two different strategies to use. And in a sense, the field has historically valued efficiency, like just do bare bones. Don't do anything lavish. But then sort of the new model is saying, well, no, do what you need to do to accomplish your mission, to be effective. And so it's not a straightforward answer, but there is a history and there is sort of a culture within nonprofits that is shifting to changing to be more effectiveness-minded versus just bare-bones efficiency. Uh, another way of measuring organizational performance is in the book it talks about benchmarking. And, and basically, if you're a new organization, say you're starting up you know, music education, nonprofit, a way to measure your performance would be comparing yourself to other similar organizations in that field. So other organizations that are doing musical education, I look at the effectiveness of your organization by comparing it to similar organizations in the field and how they're performing. And then another way of measuring organizational performance it's just, are you accomplishing what you set out to do? Like, is the org, you know, so the organization as a whole has a mission, has a vision. Is it seeing success as an organization? And so that would look at, you know, year after year, are there outcomes that are consistent with the mission of the organization? So that's some of organizational performance. Then we're going to shift to program effectiveness because, again, these are two very different ways of looking at it. One is sort of more global, and then one is looking at well, your marquee program. Like, what's, you know, if it's Habitat for Humanity, you're putting people in homes, you're building homes. And so, how effective is that program? What I want to do is pick one of your nonprofits. Okay, yeah. So we're going to pick one of the nonprofits that you're starting up, and we're going to do Food Life. Where's Where's Food Life, people? Okay, so Food Life. Okay, you guys have to represent. It's uh, dealing with food insecurity in Detroit. So it'll be like your typical food pantry, but then it will also include like a nutrition educational component as well as like how to cook healthy food and just to better um, about how to make smart. Okay, so a holistic food education and provision program. So we're going to be measuring sort of the, the program effectiveness. And so we'll start with what is the, the need or the problem your organization is addressing? So what is the problem? out there, you say, in Detroit. It's kind of a, like the Detroit metropolitan area is kind of a desert. Okay. Of food and okay. So the access to healthy food is very limited or low access to healthy in the Detroit area. So with all of your organizations, if you think about it, each of your organizations is set up to meet or address a need or a problem. Whether the, the need is for music education, whether the need is for a school in a, in a community, or the need is for mentoring, there's, there's a need or a problem that your organization is addressing. And so then you have a certain desired outcome relative to that need. So if we think of food life, what is your desired outcome for food life? So what is your vision? If, if food life is successful, how would Detroit be different? If it's successful, food desert out of Detroit, uh -huh. it will lower the statistic of food insecurity uh -huh. as well as the household food income. So you have some pictures or ideas of, okay, here's what success would be for food life. So we have the problem, we have the desired outcome. And then the question would be, how can that outcome be achieved? So what does food life need to do to accomplish that vision or to contribute to that seeing that vision become reality. So hopefully just educate everybody, provide that and have go out and like exercise that knowledge. Okay. So in a sense, if you, if you think about what's the problem, what's your vision or desired outcome, then your programs, and this would be true for any nonprofit, your programs are sort of your path steps 
to seeing that vision become a reality. So you have, you design certain programs, okay, here's how we're going to achieve our particular outcome. So the, the thing with the, how are the outcomes going to be achieved, what you would think about with your organization is, what is your theory of change? So and this is sort of, as you think about your program and its effectiveness, if, you, if you're doing food insecurity, you might say your theory of change is more structural, like making access, access to food more widely available. Whereas if you're doing food assistance and you're saying, well, we just need to set up you know, a soup kitchen where we feed people, those are two different theories of change. Like one would just say, well, let's just provide food for people, you know, warm meal. And what uh, Food Life is saying, actually, our theory of change is more structural, that we need to increase access to food overall. It needs to be more comprehensive and that we do education on healthy eating and so that there's a long-term impact that, that, that our organization can make. And so your theory of change will influence the programs that you set up. So the theory of change would be, how do we think this problem can be most effectively addressed? And then your programs should reflect that theory of change. You know, if you have a major wicked problem and yet your solution is just sort of a little bit of a band-aid, your theory of change isn't commensurate with the problem. And your programs aren't reflecting sort of what's really needed to make long-term changes. And so then they talk about this in word, the logic model, and it's what things need to occur along the way. So if we think of food life and your long-term vision is that there be greater access to food, better education, more healthy eating, what are all the things along the way that will need to happen? Like, what are some of the steps along the way? Guys, work and hire educators or business professionals so that provide those, like, classes so yeah, so what this will help you to do is think through all the different players that need to be involved, all the coordination that needs to happen. So whether it be farmers, educators, families that are going to participate, places to store the food, places to have the classes for education. So the, the logic model is sort of what are all the things that need to go into your program. And it can't just sort of be blindly assembled, but it actually has to fit with the larger mission of your organization and making sure is this consistent or in line with, with our mission. The logic model is that you're going to need to do this for your program. I think this is in the book, but I'm not sure. But to clarify what it is, is, you know, you start with the situation, which is a food desert in Detroit. And the inputs are all the resources that you're going to need to address that problem. So the inputs would be the farmers, the educators, the facilities, the actual food, the clients, the families. And then the activities or services are the actual program. So you maybe open up a grocery store in, in a food desert area, or you have classes, or you have people who go door to door to educate people about healthy healthy eating. So it's all the different activities or services or programs that you're doing. And then the outputs are, and this is, there's a key distinction between outputs and outcomes. The outputs are sort of the things that you can directly <coughs> through. So how many uh, families are enrolled in the classes? Or how many people shopped at the grocery store in the last month? Or how many farmers donated food to this grocery store? So it's all the things that you can measure related to your program. and stuff that you have, in a sense, complete control over. And those are the outputs. And the outcomes 
are sort of the bigger things like the reduction of unhealthy eating in Detroit or the greater access to food in Detroit. And so you don't have as much claim or control over that. You know, say, let's say healthy eating increased in Detroit by 10%, whatever that number is. Food Life can't say, hey, look what we did. We increased healthy eating in Detroit by 10%. Well, you can't really claim that because there's other organizations in there that are doing food education and nutritional education and sort of addressing the food desert issue. But Food Life can sit here and say, here's how we contributed. Here's the outputs. Here's our tangible things that we did as an organization, the outputs that led, that contributed to these outcomes. So there's a difference. And so a lot of times organizations will like to claim the outcomes, like look what we accomplished, you know, look at how Bloomington is better now. But really, the only thing that you can legitimately claim is the outputs, the specific services that you provided and the number of people who are involved, the number of graduates of your program. But as you design your program for your nonprofit, it needs to sort of fit this logic model and it's all couched within your mission and vision of your organization. And so the inputs are the resources, the activities are what the program does, and then the outputs are the tangible things we can count and claim, and the outcomes are the desired end result. So the desired end result is bigger than your organization. It encompasses collaborating with multiple organizations addressing collectively this issue. In terms of program evaluation, what you'll do for evaluating your program as you set up your program and think about the program that you're doing, you need to have evidence that your program caused the outcome that you were aiming towards. So I think of like the good bar. Where's the good bar? So what's your desired outcome for good bar? Or tell me what good bar is. Um, again. It was that mentoring program where we bring mentors in to help people who might not have gone to college and are kind of limited in their careers to succeed. Um, because it could be right now connecting those people with professionals in Bloomington and starting those relationships uh-huh. and seeing those grow. Okay. said, <laughs> in so many years after going to these, did you find a career path that you were satisfied with? Okay. Did you get a job that you could see moving forward? So getting people into careers, into full-time employment. Yeah. And so, again, if, if you think of Good Bar as this career mentoring program, there's outputs that you guys could do of, like, helping people write up a resume. Like, how many resume classes did you have and how many people participated and how many people had a resume? Or how many connections with business owners or professionals were made over the course of the year. And so those would be the outputs. And the outcomes would be, I have a satisfying career, I have a full-time job. Now, Good Bar can't sit there and say, look at how many people we got jobs because there were other factors involved in me getting a job. But you could say, we help this many people develop resumes, we help this many people make network connections with business professionals. So again, you see the difference between outputs and outcomes. The thing that you'll need to do as an organization is identify what are the things that you can actually measure, that you can claim and measure. So what are the indicators in differentiating between the outputs and the outcomes? So you need to be able to identify both the outputs, the tangible things that you can measure, that you claim, and the outcomes are sort of the larger picture outcomes of your organization.